Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on climate change and global warming, State of the Union. The Union of Concerned Scientists, among many, many, many others, says climate change is one of the most devastating problems that humanity has ever faced, and the clock is running out. For over 200 years, humanity has powered itself with fossil fuels like oil and coal, and we've seen an enormous amount of development and progress, but at an incredible cost. When burnt, fossil fuels all release carbon dioxide, which acts like a blanket all around the earth. And this causes a whole range of impacts, many of which we are seeing right now, this day, in parts of the U.S. and across the globe. So if we do nothing, these impacts will worsen. Large swaths of the world's population will likely migrate, and we will see more climate refugees, which, of course, we've already seen, which is causing some of our immigration issues. And the magnitude and the range of impacts means that almost every human being on Earth will be affected if they're not already. Low-income communities and people of color will be hit the hardest as they typically are with everything. But change is still possible. Science suggests that we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change if we limit warming to under two centigrades. So here today, to help us unpack this, we have two very smart people, an environmental scientist and an environmental activist, to help us try and understand where we are now with global warming and climate change. And here to start us off with the first part of our program, with unpacking some of this, is Dana Nucitelli. Dana is with Yale Climate Connection and the Citizens Climate Lobby. Dana is an environmental scientist and author of Climatology versus Pseudoscience. He has published 10 papers related to climate change in peer-reviewed journals, including three studies on the expert climate consensus. Dana has written about climate science for skepticalscience.com since 2010 and for The Guardian since 2013 and for Yale Climate Connections since 2018. Welcome, Dana. We are so glad you could join us today. Yeah, sure thing. Happy to be here. Dana, could you start out by explaining to our listeners the difference in global warming and climate change? How do they both happen and what is the intersection of the two? Sure, that's pretty simple. So uh, when people burn fossil fuels, we pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That increases the greenhouse effect, basically trapping heat, and that causes temperatures to go up. So that's global warming. 
And then when those temperatures go up, it causes various uh, weather changes. So we tend to get more extreme weather, like stronger droughts and floods and hurricanes. So that's climate change. Basically, it's humans cause global warming, which causes climate change. Now, you mentioned greenhouse gases, which we've talked about a number of times on the show over the last year. And I forgot to mention, and I'll remind you and the listeners, too, this show is the start of our second season. We've been on a year now, and every month we talk about different environmental subjects. And last year, like this year, we started out talking about climate change and global warming. That's kind of the overall picture of things. But I want to go back, as I started to mention, greenhouse gases. We hear a lot about greenhouse gases, but I'm not sure everybody understands what we mean there or if everybody's on the same page when we say greenhouse gases. So can you explain that in terms of global warming and climate change? Yeah, so there are various different, uh, these gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and some others that uh, basically, when they're in the atmosphere, uh, visible light that we see, it just goes, it passes right through them. And so it comes from the, from the sun, passes through the atmosphere, hits the earth. And then the earth absorbs that and sends it back up as heat, as infrared light. And greenhouse gases absorb infrared light. And so basically, as the infrared light comes back up from the surface, they absorb it and they re-radiate it. They send it out in all directions. So some of it goes back out into space, but some of it comes back down to earth. And so the more of these greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere absorbing the heat, the more of that heat they send back down to Earth, and that's why it traps more heat and causes the planet to warm. So the greenhouse gases form that blanket around the Earth that I was talking about earlier. It's a blanket, and just like if you have a blanket over your head or whatever, it traps everything inside of that blanket. Is that correct? Exactly. You got it. But the greenhouse gases are caused by what again? Uh, burning fossil fuels, um, so gasoline, diesel, natural gas, all these different things. They have carbon in them, and so when you burn them, it releases the carbon. The carbon combines with, uh, with oxygen in the atmosphere, makes CO2, for example, and so that's how you get these greenhouse gases added to the atmosphere. You know, we're adding about 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year at this point from burning fossil fuels. So the carbon dioxide mixes with the other things in the air, causing the greenhouse gases, which then form that blanket around the earth and get trapped. And that causes the warming, what we say global warming. Yep, you got it. And then the global warming causes the climate to change. Right, exactly. And then one more time, you talked about it briefly, but I want to really kind of alliterate or itemize some of the things that the climate change causes here on Earth. Sure. So, I mean, an obvious one is heat waves because there's more temperatures going up, more heat being trapped, so you get more heat waves. Uh, You tend to get stronger droughts, stronger floods because storms kind of get stuck in one spot and there's more water in the atmosphere. Uh, Hurricanes get stronger because the oceans are warmer, and a warmer ocean basically acts as fuel to make hurricanes stronger. Um, So those are some of the main ones, but it's a lot of different types of weather just become more extreme. I know you work with some climate models. And so I want to ask you, have the climate models predicted the effects of global warming and climate change over the last year? Have they predicted that well or not so? Yeah. So climate models, they make these long-term predictions um, mm-hmm. because, you know, climate changes over very long periods of time, uh, gradually. Um, so, for example, they do predict that we will see more heat waves over time, um, worse wildfires over time on, in the United States' west coast. 
um, you know, more flooding, things like these more extremes, but over time. So they don't look at like one year ahead of time. They look at, you know, decades ahead of time. And so what we're seeing now with more extreme weather events are consistent with what we expect to see more frequently. Uh, what climate models say is going to happen more frequently uh, over the long term. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they don't make short term projections. It's just that, you know, the things that we're seeing are going to happen more and more frequently as the planet continues to warm. And what I imagine, Dana, is maybe when 10 years ago, and I'm presuming it was about 10 years ago, when the models perhaps first began to predict that we were going to have wildfires and flooding and all of that, people didn't say, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to think that now that we are indeed beginning to see those things that were predicted, that's where I want to kind of key in on in terms of what we've seen over the last few years. Can you talk about that a little bit, about how we are moving toward what's seen or there any metrics or other information regarding that? Yeah. So, I mean, climate model, modern climate models have been around for about 40 years or so. Um, and uh, James Hansen, uh, the lead climate scientist for NASA, testified to Congress in 1988 saying, we're already seeing human-caused global warming. Here's the kind of things we can see in the future level rise, more more of these extreme kind of weather events. So we've been hearing about this for, you know, 30 to 40 years and, you know, haven't really done anything bad about it, haven't really paid much attention to these climate scientists' warnings, but now it is coming to fruition. We are seeing these worst wildfires, worst hurricanes, worst droughts. And so I think people are finally starting to experience firsthand these effects and making the connection that, you know, we're seeing these worst extreme weather events maybe climate change has something to do with it. And, you know, hopefully starting to listen to the scientists more carefully. Indeed. Thank you, Dana. We're going to have to go to break now, but we'll be right back on the other side to continue talking with Dana Nucitali with the Yale Climate Connection. Thank you, Dana. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through X, conferences, film festivals, interactive experiences, and now EarthX TV streaming services. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League. Go to their website, earthx.org, to register and to start talking and to register for the October conferences on conservation, as well as to check out the EarthX TV streaming service schedule. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority that we need right now. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, as well as online available for download at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with our show today on climate change and global warming, State of the Union, and we're talking with Dana Nucitelli with Yale Climate Connection and Citizens Climate Lobby. Again, thank you for being with us, Dana. We really appreciate your help in helping us to unpack this. Absolutely. Now, Dana, in your writings, you discuss the rate at which Earth is accumulating heat 
And you communicate this in terms of atomic bombs. And I believe you may have also mentioned it in terms of microwaves. Can you tell us more about this? How, where is the earth accumulating this heat? How is it manifested? How do we know it, see it, feel it? How do we know it's there? And how much heat has earth accumulated over this last year? Can you tell us that? Sure. So, I mean, I personally like to picture it in terms of uh, the equivalent energy in the, uh, the Hiroshima atomic bomb, just because that's kind of an easy thing to visualize, that large explosion. So the amount of heat accumulating on Earth is equivalent to somewhere between four and six of those atomic bomb detonations per second. So most of that heat goes into the oceans. The oceans are absorbing about four to five atomic bombs worth of heat at, uh, per second. And then a little bit goes into warming the atmosphere, a little bit goes into melting ice, and a little bit goes into warming the land and things like that. But most of it, almost like 93% of it goes into the oceans. And so the oceans absorb a whole lot of heat. Um, so, yeah, um, over the past year, so that means it's somewhere in the ballpark. It's north of 100 million uh, atomic bomb detonations worth of heat or energy accumulating on Earth, which, yeah, I mean, I like visualizing that because it's a, it's just it's really hard to picture how much heat is being absorbed if you talk about you know joules or zeta joules or something you can't really picture what a joule is but an atomic bomb detonation you can picture that and it's pretty incredible to imagine every second there's something like four to six atomic bomb detonations worth of energy being absorbed by the planet mostly by the ocean that's amazing and so what would you say is the most significant manifestation of climate change that we've seen or experienced over this last year? I mean, I think that just depends on where you're living. Because, I mean, for me, it's obviously been the wildfires because, um, I mean, really the entire West Coast of the United States, there's been, just been fires everywhere. There's been tons in California. There's been fires in Oregon and Washington and Idaho, Montana. There's just been huge, really, really big, really fast-spreading wildfires. Um, because it's been so hot and so dry, in large part because of global warming, increasing the temperatures and the heat. Um, and then, you know, this is going on at the same time as COVID's going on, which affects people's lungs and other organs. And then in California, we've got all this smoke in the air from these huge wildfires and breathing in this smoke, which you really can't avoid, also affects our lungs and other organs. And so it's like hitting the same systems as COVID is hitting. And so at least for us in California, that's been like the, the worst manifestation of climate change this year. Tell me, though, Dana, is there an anticipation or any model, perhaps, that shows that the wildfires may spread or may become experienced in other parts of the country? Because it gets awfully dry here in Texas as well. Yeah, I mean, you have to have the right conditions. You have to have the vegetation that is available to spread the fire. Okay. Um, so there's a, in the west in the west coast there's a lot of forested areas or grasslands or you know things like that, um, and then once you have that vegetation and you have to have the right climate too because it has to be dry. So in California we have this Mediterranean climate where it already doesn't rain in the summer that's just normal here, mm -hmm. and then you know the weather the precipitation patterns are actually changing as a result of climate change which is making our wildfire season get longer and longer. Um, so you have to have those conditions where it's not raining. Um, I'm not sure what the climate is exactly in Texas. And you have to have, you know, this area of either forests or grassland or shrubs or something that can burn. And then you have to have something to ignite it, like a downed power line, for example. Indeed. Now, Dana, we realize that our climate is a collective or shared resource. But 
Would you talk to us about how different parts of the world, though, may be experiencing different manifestations of climate change, and if any parts are actually seeing or perhaps about to see any changes for the good as a result of inadvertent climate change or perhaps of intentional actions they're taking? Yeah, so one kind of really unfortunate aspect of climate change is that the areas that are kind of contributing least to the problem are also the most vulnerable to its impacts. So like generally it's third world countries that are close to the equator because if you're close to the equator, your climate is already really hot. And so if it just gets a little bit hotter, it makes a bigger difference than like if you're in a relatively cool climate that gets hotter, that's not such a big deal. But if it's already really hot and it gets even hotter, it makes a big difference. Um, and then, of course, uh, third world countries, they don't have the resources available to try to adapt to climate change impacts. So like they can't build, if you don't have a bunch of money, you can't build a seawall, for example, on your coast to deal with uh, rising sea levels. So, yeah, so it's really unfortunate, like these poor countries that like they don't burn a bunch of fossil fuels and they don't pump a bunch of carbon to the atmosphere, but they're the ones that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Um, in terms of good things happening, I think... The nice thing is that in some of these developing countries, we are seeing kind of smart uh, development, like they're doing things like solar microgrids, where they're just putting a solar panel on top of a house and then connecting it to other houses nearby. And so they kind of create their own little system of renewable energy. Hmm. And so that's good because it both gives them uh, this energy availability and it also, you know, it's a way to get clean energy as opposed to bringing in fossil fuels that are contributing more to the problem. It's also clean energy, so they're not burning fossil fuels contributing to air pollution, uh, which hurts people, but, you know, in terms of what they're breathing. And so that's a positive thing. We need to see more of that kind of thing where we deploy smart, renewable, clean energy as opposed to bringing in more dirty fossil fuels. Dana, let's talk a little bit more, though, about the climate change elephants in the room two of which we've talked about. <laughs> we've talked about wildfires. we talked about flooding. What about COVID? Can you show or tell our listeners who may not already realize it that indeed these COVID wildfires flooding have some causation by global warming and climate change? So wildfires definitely do because it makes it basically increases the heat, which causes more evaporation from soil, more transpiration from plants. It basically makes everything dries out. And then so when a wildfire spikes, sparks, and spreads, it's got all this really dry fuel to spread further and faster and create more smoke. Um, so as I said, that then impacts people's lungs and other organs when they're breathing in that smoke. So that's kind of the closest connection I have to COVID. That you know, COVID also impacts people's lungs and organs in the same kind of way or similar kind of way. Um, so I'm not aware of any like direct way that climate change impacts COVID, but that's kind of a, a way that it has similar impacts to climate change impacts from wildfires. Uh, and then floods, um, basically, like I mentioned before, you have kind of weather systems that because of changes in the atmospheric circulation patterns, we're tending to get storms slow down and get stuck over one spot for a long period of time, which means they're dropping all their precipitation in one spot. Um, also, when the atmosphere warms, it holds more water vapor, and so there's more uh, water available in the atmosphere to kind of fuel these storms and make them have more precipitation to drop. And so that's why we're getting these um, clear connections between climate change making flooding worse in certain areas where they're prone to flooding already. What about wind? I don't know much about that, and we haven't talked much about that. Does climate change and the warming have any impacts on wind? 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an area of ongoing research. Uh, it depends on the particular region. Like I know in California, when we have really strong winds and wildfires going, like that spreads wildfires worse, but it's not totally clear yet. There's kind of some disagreement in the models whether the winds are going to get stronger or weaker in California. Um, but hurricanes are definitely one example because when they're going over well, warmer ocean waters, it makes the hurricane stronger. It makes them create stronger winds, and that's why you get more category four or five even Category 6 ones that create Category 6 uh, hurricanes with stronger winds. Yeah, and winds would just add to y'all's issues already in California. And we've also been told by some researchers, I think it was the folks from the University of Queensland, too, they were telling us in November, December about things like COVID. And the reasoning had something to do with the temperatures warming that were killing certain things that were needed in the ecosystem to kill other things or to keep other things alive so that it fostered the proliferation of unknown new viruses and things like that. And we'll probably be addressing that again this November as we talk again by extreme weather events. Last thing, Dana, and you've been so helpful to us, tell us about any present climate-related bills that are out there that we would want to support, as well as tell people about how ordinary folks in their everyday lives might be able to help drive solutions. Sure. So there's a bunch of different bills in Congress that would put a price on carbon pollution, which would be really important because right now it's basically free for us to put carbon pollution into the air and cause climate change. And so the costs of these climate damages we've been talking about aren't reflected in the price of the products. And so there's no disincentive for people to keep pumping and for industries to keep pumping all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because it doesn't cost them anything. And so that's really important is to put the price on carbon pollution. Um, there's also like, for example, there's a Green New Deal resolution, which you know details what we could do with a Green New Deal. Uh, there's a bunch of plans by the House Democratic committees to what they're going to do if they get in charge. And so what the main thing that people can do uh, coming up is that we need, these, we need these large systematic changes, so you need to put people into power by voting who are going to do something about climate change. So basically vote, get other people to vote, talk about climate change, make sure people have climate change in mind when they're going to the polls. Thank you so much, Dana. You've made us all smarter. We really appreciate your help with this. We've been with Dana Nucitelli with the Yale Climate Connection and the Citizens Climate Lobby. Thank you. And on the other side, we're going to move on to part two of our program about the State of the Union of Climate Change and Global Warming. Thank you. Thank you. back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with part two of our show today on climate change and global warming, State of the Union. And this is the first episode for season two of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we are just so happy to still be able to bring this important information about the unbreakable relationship between the health of the planet and our health. Now, climate change is affecting the American people in very far-reaching ways. Impacts related to climate change are evident across regions and in many sectors important to society. Climate change creates new risks and exacerbates existing vulnerabilities in communities across the U.S., presenting growing challenges to human health and safety, quality of life, and the rate of economic growth. 
the impact of climate change is already being felt in our societal systems across the country. And future climate change is expected to further disrupt many areas of life, exacerbating existing challenges to prosperity posed by aging, as well as deteriorating infrastructure, stressed ecosystems, and economic inequality. Impacts within and across regions will not be distributed equally as we're already seeing. People who are already vulnerable, including lower income and other marginalized communities, have lower capacity to prepare for and cope with extreme weather and climate-related events, as Dana just talked to us about, and they're expected to experience greater impacts like they have with COVID. And here today, to help us further unpack and understand this some more, is Tiana Arredondo with 350.org and with the COP24 delegation. 350.org is an international environmental organization addressing the climate crisis. Its goal is to end the use of fossil fuels and transition to renewable energy by building a global grassroots movement. They say the climate crisis is immense. We must be daring and courageous in response, which I love. We embrace experiments and new solutions, recognizing that this crisis requires innovative ways of solving problems. And Tiana is an environmental activist and has supported environmental justice organizing at the local, statewide, national, and international level with leaders from many backgrounds. Tiana is currently the regional environmental justice organizer for 350.org for Hawaii and California, supporting local leaders in their leadership while creating structures and processes of accountability. Tiana has a degree in mass communications and journalism and public health science from California State University at Fresno. Welcome, Tiana. We are so glad you could join us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Grateful to be here. Tiana, before we get started, could you tell our audience what the COP24 delegation is? We hear that term used a lot, but I'm not sure that everybody really knows what it is and its significance. So COP is essentially, it's, it's an acronym for Conference of the Parties, and it's the United Nations Climate Change Conference, essentially. So at a COP, you have the ministries, governments, um, elected officials from all over the world coming together to work on ways to heal the planet. And there are so many different ways that that happens at a COP. Um, and just for sake of time and context here, we could really focus on the Paris Agreement um, because that is a huge focus of COP. And um, so the COP, Conference of the Parties, Conference of the Parties, and it basically in shorthand, refers to the United Nations climate change activity or effort? Yeah, the United Nations Climate Change Conference is the technical term, yeah. Okay, sounds good. So, Tiana, most Americans know about or at least have heard about the Paris Climate Agreement, which you just mentioned. I think many more people have heard and know about the Paris Climate Agreement than perhaps COP. They just heard it but don't know what it means. And, of course, they probably heard also that the U.S. has been withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement. Can you talk to us about what this withdrawal means to the U.S. and means to us in our lives every day? Yeah, sure. So the Paris Agreement, essentially like a big picture zoom out, is 
that it's an agreement joined at a national level by many other countries, and it's focusing on how we're going to reduce emissions, how we're going to attempt to like stop the rise in global temperature, and how each nation is going to do that in regards to the way that their government functions, in regards to the way that their businesses are functioning, in regards to the way that the government is holding companies and industry accountable for adaptation, mitigation, reparation, um, for all of the ways that these people on the ground are being regular everyday people like ourselves who are not billionaires, who are not industry leaders, who are not companies, how we are being impacted by climate change. So the focus of the Paris Agreement is, is that everyone is coming together essentially to be like, hey, this is how we in our nation are going to help heal the planet, how we are going to help change industry, how we are going to help change our government to adapt and to make changes that are needed to support our communities and our people and our humans, as well as the environment, as well as industry. So when the United States pulled out, it was not only, yeah, in the United States, for, for us to see a lot of shifts in the ways that um, we're seeing industry have really harmful externalities in other places, right? The global South, different countries. We have to stop the precedent. We have to shift our behaviors because we are a large cause of it. We're only, I think, 4.5% of the global population, but there are countries where someone could live four lifetimes and not have the same carbon footprint as one American in two years, right? So... Specifically, um, when we were pulled out as a country, that that basically gave more power to industry to do whatever they want and not be accountable to the agreements of the Paris Agreement. I have to think, too, Tiana, that in all the rest of the world and all the things, and they were able to really show some significant improvements in their numbers, I have to think the problem still wouldn't be because the climate is a shared collective resource. Exactly. And that's exactly what, that's exactly the point. So, so specifically at COP24, for example, us youth organizers that came, we were working with youth leaders from the global South to learn, okay, we're not even in this agreement anymore. We're not even here technically because of our own president and our own government. How can we support? What does that look like? And that's what we were really looking to have happen in the real world, real time government scenario was seeing the United States industry and government shift our trends, shift our habits to, be, to begin to create a new precedent because we do hold that power and privilege because in a lot of ways, our industry leaders are the ones setting the precedent for how this looks in other spaces and places around the world. So when we're shipping our garbage to China, when we're continuing to put emissions into the air and kill the planet and have no accountability, we're setting a precedent that that's okay and that can keep happening, right? So you're exactly right. It's not something that can be fixed overnight and it's not something that can just be reversed by a few people saying, okay, we'll stop. It is a, it, there's a huge, huge responsibility for the United States to step up in a lot of ways because of how much of an impact we have on the entire globe. And that's witnessed in health outcomes, right? Um, a lot of our nutritional health outcomes are being seen all around the globe because of the ways we're shipping our food. Um, and, and I could go on and on and on, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. And I think that's the significance of the Paris Climate Agreement that a lot of people don't recognize, and I guess we need to do a better job of telling that story, is that it is a coming together, basically, of the world to help solve 
this climate change issue, which is a worldwide collective issue that can only be solved by a worldwide collective. And again, that story just, I'm not sure it's being told well enough. The specific demands at 350 come from what you're explaining, the fact that people have known and haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that specifically f- talks about is that we are actually fighting to see no fossil fuels, a future where there are no more fossil fuels, because 100 companies are responsible for 71% of emissions. So when we see campaigns like Exxon New, there are companies like Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP. I could literally keep going. There are almost 100 companies who literally have had this research and have known um, the harms and the impact of their doings of their business, and they will not, they did not stop, they did not listen, they continued, and they lied about climate change. So we focus on a future with no fossil fuels. We're asking for 100% renewables because we can't just fight against the system. We have to create solutions that are regenerative and restorative to the earth. And then lastly, it's about not investing in these companies and not investing in financial institutions that are going to invest in these companies. But that's, that's a little bit about what we're doing here at 350. Indeed. Tiana, we're going to go to break right now, and we'll be back on the other side for you to tell us much more about these interesting things that 350.org is doing. We are with Tiana Arredondo with 350.org and also a COP24 delegate. Thank you so much. We'll be right back on the other side of the break to continue this interesting conversation. And we want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festivals, and interactive experiences, as well as the new EarthX TV streaming services. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League. Go to their website at earthx.org to register, to start talking, and to register for their October conferences on conservation, as well as to check out EarthX TV streaming service schedule. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, as well as online available for free download at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We are back with the last segment of our show today on climate change and global warming, State of the Union. And we are here with Tiana Arredondo with 350.org and with the COP24 delegation. Thank you for being with us, Tiana. We really appreciate you making time. Yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Tiana, I know that many, many organizations and companies as well have adopted the UN Sustainable Development Goals. How are y'all seeing this play out? Everybody's adopting the goals. Is that a greenwashing thing or what are you seeing as a result of this? Yeah, so at 350, my function is um, as an organizer. So I actually solely spend my time having conversations with folks creating trainings, creating campaign marketing materials, and working one-on-one with leaders to support their local groups. So 
I don't particularly track sustainable development goals or of other organizations myself. Um, I think greenwashing is a thing that's happening right now everywhere in every way. Um, in the same way, we're seeing diversity ads and everyone's claiming how radical they are. We're seeing the same thing with, with the earth. And I do think a lot of it is greenwashing. It is making things sound appeasing, making things sound good so that others buy into it. Um, and I can speak to that a little bit because I think all that is is how disconnected we are as a nation and as a people. Um, we don't actually have any connection to where our products are coming from, where our food is coming from. Um, we, we don't have any idea of where all of this is coming from. So it's easy to believe a sign post or something when you have no connection. And so, um, yeah, I, I, a lot of it is greenwashing. And there also are a lot of amazing things coming from universities and industries that have adopted sustainable development goals in their lar- long-term strategic planning. Um, so I would say just like anything, you know, um, take it with a grain of salt. That is what I was getting at because you see it so much and people are just throwing around the term. So you have to wonder what's real, what's really happening. So Chana, who though would you say has 2020 illuminated as perhaps the biggest contributors to climate change and emissions from where you sit, who were the biggest culprits this year? <laughs> so the, the key ones that we focused on are Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP. So these are some of the companies who you can look back into their records and see that they actually did pay scientists to ask, what are the risks? What does this look like? How will this happen? What will, what will come of this? And they have been the ones who have known and continued and are refusing to um, tend to any of the mess that they've created, right? So that is a, that's a specific focus there. Yeah, and, and the thing is, the damage is widespread and it's long-lasting. So in our work, we don't, as organizers, it's not that we're looking at every single disaster and tying it back specifically to one event or one specific thing that's happened. This is decades and decades of extracting, compounded, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, this last year alone, there's been 7,000 new oil projects and permits approved by our governor in California. Oh, okay. Um, so that's been a huge focus of our work. Uh, the coalition I've been organizing with in California, Last Chance Alliance, we've been asking that uh, Governor Newsom would stop new oil projects, drop existing permits, and roll out in 2,500 square foot setbacks from these sites, Right. So a lot of my work and my focus is on how do we actually slow the harm that's caused by these projects and how do we also demand a different way of moving forward and how do we stop these big polluters from what they're doing. We've been calling on our governor and our our local government and our government officials to support us in that effort. So that's where a lot of my attention goes. How is COVID compounding the climate crisis? Yeah, okay, so essentially... This is, this is my little wheelhouse. So the, the, the thing with climate change is that it's similar to our bodies, right? If, if, if you can imagine your body right now, um, you've eaten whatever you've eaten today. You have your routines that you've been in. Maybe you're a little stressed out. Maybe you're not. And perhaps something later in your day triggers something in your system that makes a disease prevalent in your body or you happen to pass out or something. You, you need a nap for some reason. Something has shifted in your in your own body. And that's what's happening with climate change. We have lived in a planet, in a space, especially in the USA, where we are seeing other people have famines. We are seeing other people have 
pandemics, we're seeing other people have crisis and it's like, oh, that can't happen here. That's not real. Right. And so when we see COVID happening, you can think of it, um, for example, in the Central Valley, we have valley fever. Right. So folks who are working the land out here are getting valley fever because of the heat when they're tending to the land, spores are coming up out of the soil that is causing this fever that's been stored and dormant for a long time to now be active. So that what we're experiencing with COVID is almost like a little preview of what is to come. So what I think is happening from, from, from COVID, from the ways that climate crisis is being compounded, we're finally realizing, recognizing that we can no longer act as though climate change is not happening because this is just the beginning. This is just a little preview of what's to come. Um, COVID is making clear the way people don't have access to food. So there are food deserts, specifically where I live in Fresno, California, all throughout. So if you are not living on the wealthier side of town, you have no access to food. That is a direct result of the way people build homes and the way that homes are built in nicer, richer areas for white folks and people with money. And if you're black, brown, or poor, you are far away from wealth and food and safety, right? Healthcare, same thing with COVID. You're experiencing, I had a friend the other day called me from New York, whose whose eight-year-old daughter is seeing dead bodies put into these tiny home trailer-like units that are freezers. And, you know, 200 people are dying a day in boroughs, and it's not on the news. Well, they live between the Bronx and Flatbush, so it's not being televised as much, right? Because Brooklyn and, and the Bronx are not as much of a focus. So we're also seeing clearly how climate change has already disproportionately impacted brown, indigenous, black people of color. And that, that is being um, made aware now because with COVID, the people that are able to escape COVID in the, in the most practical ways, like seeking care, having time off work, not having to be out in public, are folks who have a certain level of privilege that is attributed to um, the divisions created by climate change. Indeed. In in all of our shows last year, and I'm sure the same thing will happen this year with our monthly topics, our guests are telling us that almost without doubt, without fail, the brunt of the negative environmental issues are being felt by the vulnerable classes, which tend to be low-income minorities and an unexpected children. So they catch the worst, whatever is bad or negative, they're catching it. Now, Tiana, in the 350.org mission statement, you all state, we embrace experiments and new solutions, recognizing that this crisis requires innovative ways of solving problems. Can you briefly tell us about some of those innovative problem solutions you all are advocating and implementing? Yeah, so um, at 350, the main function of 350 as an organization is these mass mobilizations. So pre-COVID, thousands and thousands of people would take, hundreds of thousands of people would take the streets at the same time, coordinated between 24 hours, a week long, all over the globe. It's been going on for 10 years now. And so as 350, that's the main function, right? Um, To mobilize. That was solely what they've focused on for a really long time. I've been here for about a year and I came on the premise that they wanted to learn how to organize. How do we connect with people? What does it look like to keep in relationship with folks? And what does that work look like? So right now there's a lot of experimental projects going on at 350. Experimental is this organization's term for new and different for them. Um, And they're tapping into what does it look like to trust local leaders? So we have implemented um, a lot of just transition work throughout the country. And it's not us implementing anything new. It's not us starting anything new. It's actually the opposite. 
it's the organization asking a lot of us, oh, hey, what are they doing in your communities and how does that work? And, and what does that look like? So our Just Transition work is focusing on working with unions, fossil fuel workers, um, legislators, and businesses, community leaders. We're talking and we're having conversation on how do we transition out of fossil fuel operations? How do we make sure that these, these workers have jobs? And how do we protect everyone in this process as we move through. That is fascinating and amazing, and you all are really, really doing amazing work, and we greatly appreciate you taking time out to be with us today to help us understand this more and to help us get a sense of where the state of climate change is. And we really like it that you speak to our listeners. The premise of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio is to help ordinary people understand what's going on in their everyday lives, how it affects them. We want them to have climate empathy. Thank you so much. We've been with Tiana Arredondo with 350.org. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourself. Each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live. This is Bernie Spudler. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you again next week with Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio.